We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Drew Holden. He's a freelance commentary writer. You may have indeed seen his work in The Federalist, and you've probably almost certainly seen it on Twitter, where he is the the keeper of the threads. I think that's what they call you, right, Drew? (laughs) That's right, Emily. That's right. Yeah, the the threads have taken on a life of their own. They're a blast. (laughs) Well, Drew's Twitter account, you should absolutely give it a a follow. It's Drew Holden 360. Um, and, And one of the reasons that maybe the primary reason, indeed, the primary reason I wanted to talk to Drew today is because the flip flopping, I think, has been overwhelming. Um, the last couple of weeks when it comes specifically to Omicron. Now, we're taping this episode on the anniversary of January 6th, in which there has been uh, <laughs> plenty of memory holding and, and plenty of hypocrisy. And maybe we can get to some of the other uh, some of the other themes of hypocrit- hypocritical themes that you've highlighted um, over the course of <laughs> your time on Twitter. But <laughs> Omicron... I don't even know how to react. I don't know how to digest. This is one of the things that is almost inconceivable to me that so many people have been so shameless in their flip-flopping. What does it look like? Like, can you tell us sort of what this is actually, what shape the Omicron hypocrisy has taken? Yeah, it's so, Emily, I think it's been, it's relatively unbelievable, I think is probably the right way to put it. You know, we've had other variants that have come through, Delta being the most recent one before Omicron, where you've seen people hedge, right? Or they'll say, oh, the science has changed, whether or not that's actually true, I think is in many cases beside the point. But they'll they'll say that that's why they're changing. But then we had Omicron come along and you saw truly an about face and from everyone from kind of your TV talking heads, media networks to the CDC and Dr. Fauci and and other people who are in kind of positions of authority who very, very recently were telling us one thing about everything from masks to cases to school openings, and now are singing an entirely different tune, despite many of the underlying factors and variables not actually changing all that much uh, in, in a lot of cases. Right. And again, you you have an ongoing thread that I absolutely love. It's called you, you you've called it Fauci versus Fauci. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which yeah. is entirely appropriate. Um, you've had a, a lot of additions to that in recent days. Um, can you tell us about Fauci versus Fauci? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then especially absolutely. what you've added to, to that thread recently. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, you know, hit me a number of months ago, I'm sure hit many of your listeners, Emily, and you as well, was that it, pretty early on in the whole pandemic, it started to seem like of all of the people who were flipping on the things that they were saying from week to week, day to day, hour to hour, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was was kind of the top of the list. And so I went back, uh, back in July of this year and started to catalog some of those, some of the big ones that really jumped out to me. And so that was everything from masks. Uh, Dr. Fauci famously told people not to go buy masks. Uh, he said they weren't particularly effective. We had a lot of tests at the time that showed that particularly for cloth masks, we knew they weren't that effective at stopping viruses. Uh, him flipping all the way to not just one, but at least two masks is the best way to keep yourself safe. Uh, he had flipped around the origins of, of the coronavirus, I think pretty famously. It originally said that there's no chance that it came from a lab in Wuhan to kind of hedging his bets a little bit more recently. 
Um, and then uh, and across the pandemic, we saw a number of other ones in terms of when to advise testing, when to advise the uh, different variations of the, of the vaccine. But then most recently, one of the things, you know, I, I went back and one of the things I do or try to do, at least with these threads, is I look back on how predictions pan out. And so one of the ones that caught my eye recently was that back, um, let's see, it was back in April of this year, Dr. Fauci had said that we are, uh, he, the CNN quotes him as saying that there, there is a disturbing level of new COVID cases and that we're primed for a new surge. When you look back, that didn't actually happen. <laughs> we, you know, in April, we were coming off of a pretty high uh, in terms of what the seven day moving average was. It was about 250,000 back in January and then had really bottomed off going into June of, you know, from from that time period down into June, we saw some of the lowest sustained numbers that we had on COVID. So that that was entirely wrong, but it led me to think, okay, Fauci here is worried about cases. And what led me to think that was just this week, Fauci says, and I'm, I'm quoting here now, that it's much more relevant to focus on the hospitalizations as opposed to total number of cases. Mm. That's something that, of course, at least in my reading, and I think the, the reading of a lot of other people, has always been the case, right? If, we're, if, we're, if what we're really worried about here is, overrunning hospital capacity, overrunning ICU bed capacity, overrunning the number of ventilators we have, then those are the sorts of things we should be interested in. Cases aren't really helpful. They don't tell us a lot uh, if they don't actually track these these other indices. But so I, I put the two cases next to each other because, you know, when he said that cases were a big deal, we were having somewhere in the ballpark of 100 to 200,000 cases. And as I'm sure folks have noticed, what we've done instead recently is we've past the 400,000 mark, right? But the issue, the problem, and this is what really kills me, I think, about, about a lot of Fauci's flip-flops is now all of a sudden we have the good guys who behaved the way they were supposed to all along, who are a lot of the cases. It's blue cities, it's blue states, right? New York City is, is shattering highs day in and day out. And so now, by happenstance, wouldn't you know it, Dr. Fauci consults his oracle of science and he tells us that no longer did these things matter, even though I promised you recently that they did. Well, and, and it's not even just it's not even just Fauci. Fauci is particularly astounding. But you've highlighted uh, flip flops from two people that I want to get to right now. And let's start with Michelle Walensky. Um, yeah. And two issues come to mind. And maybe I'm missing one. One on cloth masks and then also on uh, quarantine time. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. So w Walensky early on in the pandemic, uh, along with Fauci and a lot of other people, had endorsed cloth masks. This was particularly around the time when we were we were worried potentially about shortages of N95 masks. And so when Omicron comes out, there was some evidence that cloth masks weren't particularly effective. The issue is there was a lot of evidence going back well before the pandemic that cloth masks weren't actually particularly effective at, at much of anything. Uh, but so she, she decided that with Omicron coming out, it was an important time to update that guidance and said, no more on the cloth mask that we've told you now for two years work effectively. They don't actually work effectively. Some of that, in fairness to her, uh, has to do with the actual makeup of the virus and that given size particles that, that they are probably less effective. But Emily, I think your second point is, is one that I'd love to zero in on. And this is about what the, um, the, the expectations are for people who test positive or are exposed to COVID. And so she had, the CDC had recently changed their guidance. They went from 10 days of quarantine, shrunk it down to five days of quarantine. And what was really astounding to me was then Dr. Walensky went on CNN with Caitlin Collins and was asked, well, why did it change? And she says, and I'm quoting here, it really had a lot to do with what we thought people would be able to tolerate. Mm. This is someone and an agency who has told us for years 
that the decisions that they're making are based on science and science alone. We don't have time. We don't, we don't have the ability to worry about anything else. We have to be concerned about and worried about as a science. And shockingly, Walensky comes out just recently and really, I think, gives the game away and says, hey, you know what? We didn't think anyone was going to tolerate that whole 10-day thing. And again, by happenstance, now that it's hitting places like New York City that have been following the, the holy guidelines of science all along, they decide, hey, you know what? 10 days, no one's going to do that. We've got to scrap it, which seemed to me at least like a pretty incredible about face considering the notes that they've hit throughout the entirety of the pandemic up to this point. Yeah, that's so true and really echoes Fauci's argument uh, that he was right to, you know, promulgate noble lies. Um, exactly. Based on what people would be willing to to tolerate and or what we were, you know, what he thought was good for the supply of N95s, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, my favorite Fauci flip-flop is when he said, America's never going to lock down. <laughs> yeah, it was of like course. February of course. 2020. Yeah. Never. It, it couldn't happen. Um, that's a that's a good one. And this one's almost believable in retrospect. Yeah, it really is. Um, and this one, it's almost unfair, I think, to pick on Jennifer Rubin at this point. But she's <laughs> she has had some moments <laughs> in recent days. Yeah, she has gone full. Um, and and we can talk maybe just a little bit about her in particular because I think she does actually have a big f- platform. She has a lot of followers on social media. She has a regular daily column on one of the most major platforms um, in the world, the Washington Post. And so I think it's probably worth dwelling as much as she's a joke on Twitter. You know, a lot of the other people who read her or see her on TV don't know that. They're, you know, they're they're blissfully um, not on Twitter. So Jennifer (laughs) Jennifer Rubin, you went and dug up her tweets about Ron DeSantis's uh, quotes on Mm -hmm. the virus and other Republicans. What, where has Jennifer Rubin landed recently? <laughs> yeah, so uh, so Rubin all along, at least since since President Biden got elected, has been a, a really like truly almost impressive sycophant, I think, to Biden and to the Biden White House, uh, and has been reliably able to put out columns that they'll be able to look at and say, ah, yes, more good news from the Washington Post, courtesy of our friend Jennifer Rubin. That's so, so back true. In, That's so right, true. and so she's. I think she's really she, she's really hit her stride on Twitter as being the type of person who either gets hate clicks from Republicans or finds her way in Ron Klain's kind of daily digest of please don't fire me kind of material. And she's, to her credit, she's done a really good, a really excellent job, honestly, of doing that. But so the problem here with anyone who cares about kind of the integrity or consistency or what have you is Ruben has been sounding an enormously different note even very recently, right? One of the things that I think is, is important to call out when it comes to talking about hypocrisy in the pandemic is yes, things change, right? The science really does change. Our understanding of things changes. And so particularly for lay people, the way they're going to understand that is going to change a little bit. But what what is almost, again, almost impressive about Ruben is her ability to change without the science actually changing <laughs> and doing it directly in accordance with what her political interests are. So back in July, she uh, she wrote a column about how uh, one part of America is deliberately at risk. It's got obviously a picture of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis above the fold. She tweets out, the right-wing political environ and media diet are are deadly to swaths of America. Will residents look around and begin to wonder why their states are effectively third-world pandemic zones in a country capable of preventing COVID-19 deaths? That's July, right? at a time when cases were up in, in Florida, but again, reacting and responding in, in the piece and in, in subsequent tweets, specifically to the number of cases that we were seeing in Florida. Okay, she did that, and that, that was something that I think resonated with a lot of the other things she was saying at the time. Now, 
fast forward to December of this year. She tweets, and I remember I read these lines and I nearly fell out of my chair. She says, as we recognize that COVID-19 is not a deadly or even severe disease for the vast majority of responsible Americans, can we stop agonizing over, quote, cases and focus on those who are hospitalized or at risk of dying? Hmm. And it was almost impossible for me to read those knowing the consistent note that she had struck across the entirety of the pandemic. She was consistently saying the sky is falling. Look at these cases. Look at these cases. And then all of a sudden decides to lose interest and and cases now that they're going up under a Democratic president, particularly in blue areas of the country. All of a sudden, that's not important anymore. Right. You found a tweet from her um, March 5th, 2021, where she says, Fauci says moves to reopen, quote, inexplicable as coronavirus case numbers plateau in U.S. How do you think she justifies this to herself as somebody who follows her flip flops so closely? (laughs) It's it's a great question. I mean, I um, as someone whose like fake job on the Internet is to just stare at really bad takes and hypocrisy. I spend so much time lurking on Jennifer Rubin's profile. And so I, I do have to think about right? It, it, it forces me to confront it. Um, I, the only thing I can think, the only way I can make things line up is a, she just has a degree of shamelessness that is unlike anything we've seen from a political commentator. And it's shamelessness born from a place of knowing that no matter what, she's never going to get canned for this stuff. She's never actually, I think, even going to face any sort of reprisals for what she has to say, because her tone isn't as obnoxious as some people on the left who will get reprimanded reprimanded from, from what they have to say. And Ruben's whole shtick, right, her whole point is that she's someone who, who had bad thoughts, right, back when she was a Republican, who is now correcting them with good thoughts. And so I think she at least believes that that gives her an enormous amount of latitude to contradict things she said in the past. And I think once you get over that initial mental hurdle of people will see me as a hypocrite for saying these things, I think it's really easy to just go off to the races and wake up every morning as if it's a brand new day and it is your first day walking this planet. Mm, That is a really good point. Um, What about with schools? I I feel like we've seen a good amount of uh, people, I mean, basically suddenly coming to this revelation that it's not good for kids um, and kids aren't, you know, super susceptible to COVID-19 and probably keep the schools open. Have you seen any of that from from the left in the last couple of weeks since Omicron really started dominating? Um yeah yeah i have you know um chris salise of, of cnn had a thread on this the other day of course he's, he's also a fan favorite um who he basically made the point where he um he, he like didn't get why people weren't in schools and he he was also i think this was what really blew my mind is he was talking about how uh some point unknowingly we had started blaming people for getting sick as if his network hadn't just kind of deliberately done that for the entire south of the united states for the last year and a half at least and so you've um you, you've seen it a little bit from kind of the the chattering class on the left but i think really what something that i thought was emblematic of it was a, a tweet from a, a writer at slate named will salatan who said when covid began many people thought well-being and shielding kids from any risk of the virus After two years, we know better. We tragically underrated the harm of remote schooling and social isolation. By blocking in-person education, CTU, the Chicago Teacher Union, is not doing what's best for kids. And so, again, this is one of those, I think, really frustrating sorts of moments for, certainly for me, but I think probably for just the average conservative who's on Twitter, where people on the left are coming around to something that is inarguably true, 
right? I, no one is going to argue with him that we have tragically underrated the harm of remote schooling and social isolation on kids. Spot on on that one. Where I think he's really wrong and dangerously wrong to a point where there's a little bit of memory holing going on on this is that after two years, we know better. We always, right? And I, I use always, I think, very specifically because we knew from preliminary data coming out of China before we even had a meaningful number of confirmed cases in the United States that this thing wasn't dangerous to kids. And subsequent data at the six-month mark, the 12-month mark, the 18-month mark has shown consistently that the risk to kids from COVID, even with subsequent waves, is less than their annual risk of the flu, of fires, of car accidents, of all of these things that have been part of everyday life for kids. And that what we've done knowingly for the last two years is we have, we have forestalled the interests of kids for the well-being often not even health, but just mental and emotional of adults who don't want to put themselves at risk. Uh, and I think from an ethical perspective that that's at best dubious and, and probably the sort of thing that history books will, will reflect very, very negatively on because we've, we've kind of subjugated the interest of these kids for our own well-being. And I use I use our as, as, as writ large, but it's it's an insult, I think, to the information we've had all along to pretend as if we're just getting this information now, because we've known this for a really long time. And even left wing outlets and magazines and writers have commented on this in the past. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 Ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent author authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to, to, to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing 
anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. Yeah, I think that's such an important insight uh, because, I mean, actually, here's here's one that I saw in the Atlantic just today. The headline is, mm-hmm. should I just get Omicron over with? Um, and <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing, yeah. right? Like, it's this, this piece where the author, Catherine J. Wu, is thinking and sort of hemming and hawing about whether uh, people should you know, sort of subject themselves to Omicron or continue to right. protect themselves kind of breathlessly. And it reminded me immediately, this isn't totally apples to apples. I don't know if, if you remember this, Drew. There was a headline we published uh, very early in the pandemic. I think it was maybe March or April. Um, uh, something about chicken pox parties. Yes, uh, yes, it, yes, yes, yes. So it was by a, it was by a doctor. Um, and the doctor did not submit that headline. That was uh, from a, an editor, which is totally normal. Um, and it suggested, you know, that there was a way this used to be handled where people would give their children chicken pox in order to be sure they could handle it and it was in the right setting, et cetera. It was, it was just giving historical context, saying this is something that's done right. before. The New York yep. Times, shortly after that, published <laughs> something very, very similar. And now you have the yeah. Atlantic saying, should I just get Omicron over with? It reminds me of, it's not only that they want to rebut these arguments, that they, they say that you're wrong and all of that. They now say that it's disinformation, that it should be right. censored, and essentially that it's evil. I mean, how much of mm-hmm. this, how much of what you, you've tracked just with the pandemic, if you look back on it, um, how much of these flip-flops have actually been points that people wanted to censor when they were being made by others? Yeah, I, I, in, in many cases it has been, and in some cases they've been actively censored, right, by by social media and by traditional media, or oftentimes by social media with the applause and support of traditional media because it's misinformation. I think you make a good point about this specific case, but I think another one that really jumps to me is um, the 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 lab leak theory, right? Yes. For the first for the first nine months or so of the pandemic, it floated around conservative circles, I think, pretty openly that. We should at least consider if maybe the level four biosafety lab that was doing research on bat-based coronaviruses in Wuhan, China, might be tied to the outbreak that supposedly took place about a mile down the street in a wet market. And that didn't seem incredibly radical. But if you go back to the way the media talked about it at the time, for those first nine or or 10 months, that that was illegal information, right? That that was dangerous. It was racist. It was this. Uh, the New York Times, the, what killed me, the New York Times science writer, the one who replaced Don McGahn, who famously was fired for upsetting a couple of rich kids. She said, she, she tweeted about how she can't wait until the lab leak theory dies uh, because it's because it's racist against Asian people. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was the narrative, right? That the master narrative was that this, it's not possible. It definitely isn't the case. And the fact that conservatives believe it is one misinformation, two racist. 
flash forward to January and you had, I think it was, it was New York magazine was the first one to break it. You had someone kind of give voice to the, to the, these ideas that were fever dreams among conservatives to New York magazine the day before it was published, I'm sure, but actually gave voice to this idea and said, Hey, you know, we should take this a little bit more seriously after people mind you had already been banned from Twitter for daring to tweet that they think it probably came from, from the Wuhan lab. And then right after that moment, you start to see a pickup where Places like CNN can discuss whether the lab leak had value. You have someone like Dr. Fauci, who originally dismissed the idea out of hand, saying he's not confident that this definitively came from nature. And so I think across uh, across the life cycle of the pandemic, you've seen a lot of those moments. Certainly over the origin, we saw it about ivermectin. We saw it about other potential treatments. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is another one where, you know, the, originally it was this kind of conservative conspiracy theory that maybe this thing held water. And then we got scientific studies that said, hey, actually, this might be an effective way to treat to, to treat this disease that's causing a pandemic. And so I think what we're starting to see now is that really starting to shift on the school's conversation. So you chronicle these flip-flops and these sort of double standards when it comes to everything, basically. But in science, I want to ask you, keep pulling at this, this thread about when it comes to studies, when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to treatments, and all of these things that do really require some degree of sort of medical expertise or scientific expertise, at the very least, for people to mm -hmm. say with some authority that this study defin definitively finds this, it should be interpreted in this way. Etc. Etc. Yeah. Has that made people uh, more prone to the flip flops and to the double standards because they're relying on different people to interpret it, and those people mm -hmm. in and of themselves are sort of flawed? So, like the Fauci's and Walensky's are informing yeah. what the Jen Rubens and the Chris Hayes and etc. Right. are saying, and it's really difficult to parse some of this information if you don't have a degree mm -hmm. and if you're not a practicing physician, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think that's a big part of it. Um, and I think some of those things definitely do just happen in good faith, right? Where, where people are, they're following things that on their face, like maybe the under, again, like one of the important points here is that the science sometimes actually does change. And I think people, people roll their eyes at the science and with good reason, but that there are, we, we have evolved our understanding of what this thing is. There have been different variants that are, that are in, in meaningful ways different from previous ones. And so I think that is, that is definitely a big part of it. I do think, however, that tied up in that, and I think it's hard to, to divorce these two different issues, is that there is a willingness within the corporate press to trust and not ask questions of people who are scientific experts or otherwise authority figures within these conversations. And so, yes, some of it is, is being able to parse big from small and the details and things like that that shake out of these things. But I think part of it has been, a, in a lot of ways, a lack of due diligence uh, and kind of journalistic ethics to push back on people like, I don't know, or, people within presidential administrations who are making allegations about something that's true and not being interested in asking enough questions and taking them fully at face value at a time when we really needed the media, I think, probably to step up and be and be more dogged in the pursuit of what, what the truth was. It's like the great Barrington guys who I think have been vindicated. Yeah. But your point is so important there. It's that they choose who is a legitimate medical authority and who is a crank. And they do also yep. smear those people as cranks. It's not good enough to just ignore them. They actually right. smear them, which is so much worse, based on what information is sort of politically advantageous or ideologically advantageous at the time. Do you think that's a fair reading? Yeah. I mean, it's much more cynical. I do think some of it happens yeah. in good faith. But I think also some of it is it's really, um, it's confirming ideological biases and priors. Yeah, I, I think so too, right? And so... I, I agree with you that it's a darker take than the, the the more innocent. 
sort of version of that. But I do think it's probably a, a more charitable take than what a lot of other people have alleged, which is that people are just acting outright in bad faith, right? I, I do really think that a lot of these are, it's people who, you know, they look at, at someone like Dr. Fauci, right? The, the leading medical expert in the United States over the last 20 or 30 years and say, I can trust him more than I can trust, for example, someone like Tom Cotton. And so one of the other big, I think, conspiracy theory to uh, maybe at least plausible sort of theories that happened around the uh, around the origin story was when Tom Cotton first suggested this. And there's a headline that always sticks with me where Washington Post, when Tom Cotton had said uh, on a number of occasions that we should at least investigate this biolab, the Washington Post ran a straight news headline that said, Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked. Now, they've they've since changed the title, apologize, I got a big editor's note up on top of it. But I think that this is a really dramatic example of of the, the thing that you point to where they know who their good and bad guys are in this example, right? If Dr. Fauci and Tom Cotton are fighting about science, Fauci is the good guy, Tom Cotton is the crank. And I think when you come in with those really a really fixed mindset about those sorts of facts, it leads someone, again, mostly in good faith, but very easily down a road where they're not actually interested in getting at the underlying truth of the matter. They're interested in, my guy is right, look at him dunk on this lunatic over here who's repeating these baseless conspiracy theories, who's obviously acting in bad faith. Uh, and it's a lot that we've, I think we've seen over the last two years. It's oftentimes a lot more complicated than that. Right. And I want to play devil's advocate for a moment because I think it'll bring out a very valuable point. Um, and I'm curious uh, how you would make that point um, because I, I could definitely make it. And I think you'll, you would probably say something similar, but I think it's, it's valuable. People probably say to you, Drew, you know, there's, there's so much of this on the right. You know, why are you not mm-hmm. constantly tweeting about the double standards and the flip flops on the right? Um, and I imagine you have a, a good answer to that question, but what is it from your perspective? Yeah. And, and so it's certainly something that I wrestle with, right? Because at, at no point would I dispute that there is a lot, and maybe in some cases, there's even more of this kind of stuff on the right. If, if you really want to probe into it, there's more of the flip-flopping and more of the stuff that just is, is almost impossible to square with science on the right. Like I think a lot of, I, like, I do think one of the reasons it's so easy for someone from the Washington Post to look at someone like Tom Cotton and say, well, obviously he's full of it, is because a lot of Republicans have been kind of off their rockers about a lot of this stuff. Um, and so I, I do wrestle, I think, a lot with that with that question more broadly. And I think there's there's two reasons. One is is mostly just a market failure problem, right? Right now, when Tom Cotton or any other Republican or Donald Trump or whomever says something that isn't right, there is a bevy of fact checkers waiting to attack that piece of information in faiths both good and unfortunately often bad. Uh, we don't have something similar on the other side. I don't think you have these powerful networks. You don't have the the CNN equivalents who are out there with their fact checks every time someone on the left says something that is either hypocritical or ridiculous or just facially nonsensical. And so I, I spend a lot of time based on the other side because I, I just think that there's there's a gap there relative to what exists out there in the media and, and try and do it as much as I'm able to in good faith. The other reason why I think it's important and this is, I, I'm worried I'm, I'm, I'm leaning into my own biases a little bit when I, when I say this, but um, be that as it may, I think one of the other problems is it is significantly more important in terms of what is believed to be true about the world and how it operates when the Washington Post says something yes. than when a conservative personality tweets something, right? And so every, I'll, I'll get from time to time, like, well, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Well, it's like when, when you step back and you think about how harmful these kind of consistent media narratives can be, that matters. 
right? Uh, Peter Hassan tweeted, he, he brings the tweet back up from time to time uh, about how in 2018, two years after the, the, the election in 2016, 56% of Americans believed that Russians had changed the vote counts mm-hmm. in favor of Donald Trump, that they had gone into the machines, hacked them and changed the vote counts, right? It is really easy when these narratives to take, take off to spread things that are earnestly, genuinely disinformation or misinformation. And I don't think that there's a lot of internal energy to fix and correct those things. Uh, and so rather than be the like 80th Daniel Dale out there saying, ah, well, <laughs> you know, technically what Trump said about this thing is wrong. I would rather try and fix the things that get overlooked, I think, in, in the course of business. Yeah, that's and, and those are the two points. You made exactly the two points, but much better than I would have um, that I think are important is that, I mean, this is really a question of scale and it's a question mm-hmm. of where, yeah. I mean, every resource in the media is dedicated to using double standards to fact check every single Republican, no matter how, or conservative, no matter how high profile or low pro- profile, they could be a YouTube podcaster and they yep. will breathlessly be fact checked if they say something that is brought to the attention of the media and there's there's just fewer resources and secondly it is on a bigger scale when you have the washington post and every legacy media institution that claims the banner of neutrality doing this um i think that's and i think that's why it's it's so important um what you're doing but it has to be overwhelming for you because i'm sure people are constantly sending stuff your way (laughs) and some of these people just tweet so much finding you flag them as you go like what is your process like yeah yeah that's i appreciate that yeah it's um, I'm I'm really bad at responding to my DMs because there are people constantly flagging things. Many of them are absolutely worth someone's attention, right? Like they're they're good points that people bring up, and I don't I don't even have the, the time or the energy, or in some cases the mental stamina to to keep up with all of it. Um, and, and so yeah, there's there's so much out there, and some of the some of the fact finding kind of requires that I separate what are the big and important things, and what are the things that aren't quite as big or quite as important. And sometimes I'll I'll stop midway through doing a thread. I'm like this. Yeah, like who who cares, right? Is this is this actually something that's going to be like? Is the pearl worth the dive here? Uh, in terms of how I do it, there's there's kind of the the front end and the back end. So on the front end, I I think I've been doing these threads, gosh, for for about two years now, and so I think I've started to get a little bit more of a feel when you have a news story that doesn't actually pass the sniff test. So the the recent one was in Oklahoma. There was reporting from the Rolling Stone that hospitals were turning away gunshot victims because they were overflowing with people who had overdosed from ivermectin. (laughs) And so there's, I remember I saw the headline and I thought to myself, okay, I don't know everything about Oklahoma or hospitals or gunshot victims or ivermectin, but let's, let's play out some plausible scenarios, right? (laughs) How many hospital beds would there need to be in, in rural Oklahoma hospitals dedicated to ivermectin overdoses? How many ivermectin overdoses have we actually heard of? How often do random people walk into the hospital with gunshot wounds, right? And like how many of these things don't fit plausibly together? And so some of it is just that sniff test. And I remember I saw a bunch of people sharing the story. I mean, the, the news bubble burst within 24 hours. Because the hospital came out and said, we don't actually know who this guy who you quoted is. Uh, and we haven't seen any of these things. We haven't seen any ivermectin overdose cases in our ER, nonetheless enough to, to overflow the ICUs. Uh, and so with that, it was the sort of thing where it's like, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. 
sometimes it takes longer for the bubble to burst, right? I think a lot, on a lot of the Russian collusion stuff, the really egregious sort of material, those I had to sit on for a little bit longer. So I've got all sorts of folders in my phone, on my computer, full of screenshots that I think are probably going to go bad and maybe they do and maybe they don't. And then there's the back end to make sure that I caught stuff, right? I mean, Twitter's easy enough to search. And I think the news is, is easy enough to search within moments, particularly before, you know, as long as you can get to it pretty quickly before the editor's notes and the stealth edits and everything else happen, then the, most of those embarrassing screenshots actually have a longer a longer lifespan, I think, than people realize. Yeah, I was going to say, how often does it happen um, where you go back and find something? I'm sure, I'm sure you screenshot everything, like you just said, but how often yeah. does it happen that something's deleted? Often. Yeah, I, I think what I one of the reasons I've always done screenshots is because if I were just to thread previous tweets, people will delete them stealthily and not mention it, including news outlets will delete things. Um, they'll add, they'll change headlines. I mean, people, I think people on the right, particularly of late, have started to notice that stealth editing is a real thing that the newspapers do. Um, sometimes that's for good reasons, I guess, but many times it's for not particularly good reasons where they're trying to kind of scrub the evidence on, on previous things, sometimes with editor's notes, sometimes not. Uh, and so, yeah, I do think you see a lot of those things that get deleted, be it on Twitter or just wholesale, the, the articles getting canned. Um, but a lot of the times it is the more subtle sorts of edits to the way pieces are presented or framed or, and things like that. Uh, that that just kind of shift the narrative and it's helpful to have what the original actually was because sometimes that story is, is pretty different. Yeah, uh, that's an, <laughs> that's another really good point and another thing that's sort of overwhelming. Um, is it, I guess we've talked about this uh, a bit so far, but especially with Omicron, um, it just, it's really hard. And even when you're looking at the January 6th coverage today and comparing mm -hmm. it to the sort of way that some folks on the left and the center and the media were talking about riots and in some ways excusing and even in some ways justifying rioting mm -hmm. at the time, it's, it's kind of uh, hard to... I mean, it just seems like everybody has, and this has always been true, of course, of people who are are, are partisans, right? Like it's when you have when yeah. you have a side, no matter whether it's left or right, you're going to justify some things. You're going to have double standards. Totally. But yep. people have a record of their own double standards on Twitter because exactly. so many people tweet every thought that they have on everything. Right. How does this? How does this get past people's? You know, their own smell tests when they're tweeting. Yeah. Are they just not. Do they just not have a smell test? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think some of it is that they, they don't particularly have a smell test. Sometimes I think, I think in the very specific case of newspapers tweeting, some of it is that the, the gap between the person hitting send on the tweet and the person actually making the overall sort of strategic decision about a story is, is pretty far removed. And so I think you're able to, in the same way that like, I don't know if you're upset with your bank and you call the call center. It's so like you're going to talk to the CEO of the bank and be like, hey, I hate this policy you have, right? You're going to talk to someone who's been told that they've got to tell you what the policy is. And so I think that allows people the, the kind of cognitive trade-off to be able to say, yeah, well, it's not really my call in, in some senses. But I do think the other is that, you know, for the last four or five years, I think we've all lived a little bit under a cloud, or at least people on the left in, in particular and in the media have lived under this cloud of, extenuating circumstances because of Donald Trump, yeah. right? And that things were just different then, or they're different in this context, or we need to behave in a different way in defense of democracy or whatever the line is today, right? And so I think for a lot of people, even if they look at two situations that to a neutral observer might look 
if not the same, at least really similar. There's sh- one is shaded by Trump and one isn't. And so to their eyes and to their minds, um, it's it's two totally different situations and scenarios. One of the classic examples, I think, to me is the way that the media talked about um, Afghanistan and Donald Trump's original decision to say, we're cutting a deal with the Taliban, we're getting out of Afghanistan. And the way that they talked about it when Biden came in office and said, yeah, we're following through on this deal, we're getting out of Afghanistan. Because you saw this really just hyperbolic anger and frustration and and rage and fear about Donald Trump and how he had done this thing and how it was going to be terrible. And then Biden comes into office and it's all sunshine and we're out of this 20 year war and how wonderful this is before the withdrawal and everything that came with it. But I think, I think all of that is shaded because for folks in the media, the people writing these headlines, they look at Trump and they think, well, he's a doofus, right? Obviously he's not going to be able to make the right decision and the right call. And so if he's doing this, it has to be the wrong decision. And then they look at someone like President Biden and they say, well, he is a calm, steady hand who you know, has, has been at the till of government for 40 years. And so if he's doing it, then obviously it can't be that bad. And so I think there's been a little bit of a shade kind of like that across just about everything for the last five years. And what it's led to is just an enormous amount of hypocrisy. Because at the end of the day, the facts aren't actually that different. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people have, have kind of played a bit of a mental game with themselves to allow themselves to believe that they are in fact not two sides of the same coin i want to end on a big question um and it's a it's a big question because it has i think it's a question of enormous consequence uh for our politics and that's sadly Mm -hmm. so i'm sure a lot of our listeners have the good fortune of of not being on twitter and not having to work um good that's that is wonderful if you crunch the numbers it is really a small percentage of our population that's on twitter on a daily basis um let alone Mm -hmm. at all which again is great but your what you do on twitter makes it almost worth it right that like people have these these long records of everything they have ever thought about politics Um, some people really i mean professional journalists tweet constantly and so they have these long records that have really i think exposed the double standards, exposed the Mm -hmm. hypocrisy, exposed the brain worms in ways that were previously more covered up. Um, You know, you kind of knew it if you were in D.C. or New York and you ran into these people at cocktail parties and you heard them talking under their breath and all that good stuff. But with Twitter, it's it's more out in the open and the pretense is way more dubious. And like it's, it's sort of people are able to see through it much more easily because you do what you do. Um, this stuff ends up in Federalists, which, you know, independent media is really having a moment now. It ends up on Fox mm-hmm. News. It ends up in all these different places where it's getting to people more and more. So would you say that Twitter is at this point a net benefit to American politics and culture or a net negative? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, oof. I think it mostly evens out. Uh, which I, I get is a bit of a cop out. So let, let me let me back into why why I think that that's the case. So I think you're right in that this has revealed something that has always probably been the case. I think for a long time people have kind of had the general sense impression that you know a lot of journalists lean left. We've got some some academic data that there's about four times as many uh, registered Democrats who are journalists as opposed to Republicans. A lot of the ones who are independents tend to lean left, right? Like we we kind of knew a lot of a lot of those different pieces of information, but this has but, but this has made it kind of come to life in a way that for people it it never was it was never quite easy enough to pin down. Right. Because I think I think what, what this what Twitter has really done is it has broken down the barrier between the person bringing you the news and the rest of their humanity. 
And some of that is like, oh, cool, we can see their dog and cat pictures, right? And there's something kind of friendly and humanizing about them. But unfortunately, it really does allow us to kind of crack open the journal of their mind on some of these things to reveal those sorts of biases that were easy to hide originally. And so I think that's, that's a benefit by and large for the American people that they're able to see this. It's going to drive down trust in the media, but I think it's going to do it for good reasons. Drew Where I, yeah, I, yes. I, was about to, I was about to, I was doing the like Oscar music. I thought, I, thought you, I thought your pause was a conclusion. No, keep going, keep going. But, 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 but I think the other side of this is that it also encourages journalists to follow some of their worst instincts. And it's to try and treat themselves as advocates as important people, as people whose thoughts and ideas should actually penetrate the news and their coverage. And so while, yes, it does have the benefit of bringing that to light for most Americans to be able to see, uh, and, and I think that that's probably good and helpful and healthy and will hopefully sort itself out over time, I think it actually drives a lot of those negative problems that lead that to being a, a problem worth exposing in the first place. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't entirely cut you off because that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's so true. Um, but it it's one of those things that just it keeps me going back and forth because on the one hand like Andrew Breitbart always said um, just just discarding with the pretenses is so important is really the one thing that that can fix journalism but they also refuse to discard with the pretenses Um, they they they're clinging to them even as they've proven them to be a BS over and over again on a daily basis Um, and if anything it just encourages their group think and an insularity in a more uh, obvious way Way. but drew i'm sure yeah. your friends and family sometimes ask you if you're crazy for spending time <laughs> I, on yes. twitter.gov <laughs> yeah and so and sometimes i have to look in the mirror and ask myself if i'm crazy and what the you know i i, I spend a lot of time calling out brain worms and i can't help but think that this that it's like treating lepers a little bit where it, is it is it running through my system too <laughs> hey actually this question just occurred to me do you ever get people who say yeah you're right like i, I was wrong I, this is a double standard has that ever happened Oh, uh, no, no. I very rarely hear anything from people. And it's almost when I do hear it, it's almost always this isn't fair because the conditions were actually different. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had anyone. I do have other like I have journalists like I, I have Twitter friends who are like journalists within legacy media institutions who will come out and be like, oh, that's a great point. But it's never it's never the people. And sometimes it's it's people who are applauding me for name checking their own organization. Uh, but I've, I've never had a, an individual come to me and be like, ah, you're right. I, I, I was wrong there. I'm a hypocrite. Yeah. One day. I'm one day. sure one day, but it is interesting they do it um, when it's when it's others. But I'm sure you've had uh, plenty of yeah. conversations with uh, Jake Tapper in the DMs. So <laughs> <laughs> that one I can't I, I, I can't claim to. No comment. Okay, uh, Drew Holden. He's a freelance commentary writer. You may have seen him in the Federalist. You can follow him on Twitter. You absolutely should follow him on Twitter at Drew Holden 360. Thank you so much for your time. We'll have to do it again soon. Pleasure's mine. Appreciate you having me on. Of course. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the future.